Good morning, everybody, and happy Easter again. Such a joy to worship alongside of y'all, and really glad for great weather. Uh, last year was a lot warmer, if you remember, and um, this is good. This is good. Um, happy Easter. He is risen, and we are here to celebrate that. Let's, let's pray, and then we will turn our attention to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Bow your heads with me. Father, we are here to adore you and to praise you because you are a king who lives. And uh, you have sent your son to die a sinner's death that we might uh, enjoy forgiveness from you. Uh, We have also, though, known him to be a risen king, and there is hope for transformation in that. Father, I pray that we would understand the significance of Easter more fully today. I pray that you would help us by your spirit's empowerment and enablement Um, to understand the words of Mark and their implications on our lives. And I pray the the result would be security and joy and delight to be your sons and daughters. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know me, you know that I love a good challenge. I I love challenges. Greek, I I love Greek, and it's largely because it's a challenge. I feel like I'm trying to solve a puzzle every week. Uh, Marriage is a challenge. I did not say being married to Mary is a challenge. I said marriage as an institution is a challenge. There's always stuff to figure out, and and so I I love being married. Uh, Kayaking, fly fishing, raising kids. Raising kids is a challenge. You missed a great opportunity to say amen, parents. The very best things in life, in my estimation, are are challenging. I, I, I honestly believe that, and And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is no exception. The resurrection of Jesus Christ challenges us. I I think we have failed as a church in trying to domesticate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk about some of the ways today that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually challenges us. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 16. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So the first challenge that we see is this, the resurrection challenges the mind. And and the reason I say that is simply this. Nobody expected the resurrection to occur. Now, now that should be a little bit surprising to you because Jesus talked about the fact that he was going to resurrect at least 16 times in the gospel, 16 times in the gospels, five times in the book of Mark alone, which is a very concise gospel. He, He speaks of it in chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 9 and 31, chapter 10, verse 34, and chapter 14, verse 28. So he said over and over again, I am going to rise on the third day. And here's what's crazy, y'all. Jesus wasn't the first person to talk about Jesus' resurrection. In Psalm 16, verse 10, David, speaking of himself, says, You will not abandon me to the grave. And then he goes on to say, Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, that's not talking about David. David is not speaking of himself as the Holy One because David is still in the grave. He's talking about Jesus there. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5 and verse 9, all talk about a suffering servant. This is 700 years before Jesus would even arrive on the scene. It talks about a suffering servant. And, and if you look at those verses, you will see that the suffering servant very clearly dies. Yet, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 11, that same suffering servant, one verse later, later will, will see his offspring will prolong his days, will see the light of life, will we'll be anything but dead. Jesus wasn't the first person to talk about his resurrection. I, I say all that because it is striking. It is striking that moderns seem to think that people of antiquity expected miracles behind every bush. We, we think they were into like voodoo and, and hocus pocus and, and like we just thought they were unsophisticated and so that's why they would believe in something like a resurrection. We often engage in what C.S. Lewis has called chronological snobbery. And let me explain what that means. It, it means that we think that people today are smarter than people in the past. Let, let me clarify that real quick. We have the internet that doesn't mean we're smarter. It means we're addicted to YouTube. Like that, there's a difference. So I, I get that we have more information at our fingertips. I'm not sure we're, we're synthesizing it that well. Case in point, 50 years ago, if you bought a car, the car owner's manual, manual would explain how to clean the engine valves. Today's owner manuals warn you not to drink the battery fluid. <laughs> you get it? I mean, like, our best theory on how the pyramids were built today, our, 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 our most popular theory on how the pyramids were built, we can't figure it out. We, we've decided that it was aliens. And, and we're, we're smarter than the people that built the pyramids? Like, aliens? Really? Here's what you need to realize. None of the disciples showed up. None of the, like... Jesus had said 16 times, I'm going to raise from the dead. Like you would think someone would be there to say, strike up the band, here he comes. It didn't happen. They didn't believe in it. The, the women who went to the tomb went with spices to anoint a dead body. That Nobody believed it was going to happen. They didn't fall for anything. They weren't dumber than us. They weren't smarter than us. They were just like us. That, that's what I think we need to believe. They were skeptical. They were overwhelmed. Maybe they were overwhelmed because they were skeptical. But the reality is our assumptions about what they were likely to believe just don't match what the Scriptures tell us about the people of that day. Let's talk a little bit more about skepticism if we could. There's this commonly held belief today, again moderns, that disciples, that the disciples maybe fabricated a story about the resurrection. They, they, they made it up. Look, if you're going to fabricate a lie about a resurrection, do you really make it look like the people closest to Jesus didn't really believe it? Is, is that the lie that you tell? Because it's not a very convincing lie, right? Like, it's a bad lie. I, lies are bad, but then some lies are, are bad, not just because they're bad, they're bad lies. And that's what this would have been if it was a lie. Like you say, lots of people didn't believe it, but the people who knew him best, they were in. And they weren't in. 
Nobody showed up. That morning, there were a bunch of skeptics, a bunch of people who were overwhelmed. And by the way, if you're going to fabricate a resurrection, don't make the first witnesses to the resurrection women. Go easy. Follow the logic here. Here's all I'm saying. There was a Greek pagan philosopher who was no friend to Christians named Celsus. Celsus was a guy who lived subsequent to Jesus, and he tried to discredit Christians at every turn. His strongest argument was that the original testimony about the resurrection was given by women. Was given by women. And and he said, and the rest of the culture of that day said, that women's testimony couldn't be taken because they were hysterical. I disagree, just to be very clear. Grace Bible Church disagrees, just to be very clear. I, I think Celsus was wrong, but it was considered his most compelling argument. Here's the point. If you're making up a lie back then, that's not the way to sell the lie. It, it's a bad lie because women were the first people to attest to the resurrection and they were considered unreliable. Don't tell that lie. Only tell that story if it's the truth. If it's the truth. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. And looking up, these women who have come to the tomb saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In verses 1 through 3, we see a challenge to the mind. Now, what are we going to see? Where's the, where's the resurrection challenge in these verses? The first one that I think we're going to see is the resurrection challenges religion. The resurrection challenges religion. The angel says, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you. It speaks volumes by what it doesn't say. It speaks volumes by what it doesn't say. Religion or religiosity would have had the angel say, tell those cowardly backstabbing disciples, I'll see them when they're ready to grovel. I'll see them when they're ready to walk barefoot over hot coals. I'll see them when they have finally compensated for their faithlessness to the Messiah that they claimed when they ran from him in his darkest, most painful hour. Tell him I'll see him then and not before. That's what religion says. You earn your way back into God's favor. That's what religion says. In resurrection, Jesus, on the contrary, says, I died for your sins, and I rose to call you into something better, into something greater, into something more profound, into joy, into security. And he says, meet me in Galilee. Meet me in Galilee. Not when you've atoned for your own sin. I atoned for your sin. Meet me in Galilee. Now, 
And when I say that, I, I realize that, that some of you might be thinking, I can understand how everyone else here might be invited to Galilee to meet Jesus. But me? Pastor, you don't, you don't know my sin. You, you don't need know the darkness of my sin. You don't know the consistency of my sin. You, you don't know the wretchedness of the things that I am keeping hidden. You might think that I look around and I, I see a bunch of people who are meticulously clad, mostly in pastels today, and you're like, yeah, I can see how Jesus would love them, but he, he can't love me. Not after what I've done. I want to read you again verse 7. If you feel like you might not be invited to Galilee. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It is my belief that the two words and Peter are maybe the most profound articulation of the grace of God that you can find in the New Testament. Why would Jesus tell the angel to mention Peter by name? It's very simple. Peter never would have gone to Galilee if the angel hadn't said, and Peter. Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed, the, the guy who the last time he denied Jesus, denied him because of the intimidation of an elementary school-aged girl. Peter, the guy who had seen miracle after miracle. Peter, the guy who had seen his own mother-in-law healed from an illness by Jesus. Peter, the guy who was enabled by Jesus to walk on water. Denies Jesus three times? I promise you, if Ann Peter wasn't there, Peter doesn't go to Galilee. There's not a chance in the world that that happens. You're invited. That's the point. That isn't just for Peter. That's for all the people who think maybe God's given up on them. What, what sins are you carrying that Jesus has already paid for? That's the question I want to ask you today. What, what sins are you still trying to carry that Jesus has already paid for? Lay your burdens down. Skip to Galilee. There is freedom in the resurrection. There is joy in the resurrection. Jesus invites us to meet him because he is resurrected. So the resurrection challenges religion. You don't have to earn it back. He gives you grace. But I think there's one more challenge. The resurrection challenges passivity. Now, you might be asking, how, do, how does it do that? Wait a second. The word passivity isn't in these eight verses. West? What are you talking about? How does it do that? There are two ways. I think the first way you're going to see at the very beginning of verse 6. And the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. These ladies are terrified. And the angel says, don't be alarmed. Do you ever get so scared that you kind of shrink back from life? You ever get so scared that you kind of get paralyzed by your fears? You just sort of get stuck? Do you ever get so scared 
that you won't speak up, that you won't stand out? You ever get so scared that instead of living by the convictions that you have, that you're just trying to blend in and be a chameleon so that you can be, get along? Is that you? Has that been you? Fear holds a lot of us hostage. Look at the text. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Why? You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? The answer to fear, which paralyzes, is the resurrection. And God says, here it is. Tomb's empty. Tomb's empty. It's the antidote for fear. Resurrection means everything that was broken just got fixed, or everything that's still broken will be fixed. My, my sin issue with God, the, the, the sin that kept me from going to Galilee, that's fixed. My, my body issue, my body is breaking down. That will be fixed. My hair issue, it's an issue. That'll be fixed too. New heaven, new earth, new body. We don't have to cling to this world like it's the only world that we will ever have. There is something better that comes, which leads us to verse 7. But go tell the disciples and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. Go and tell. And instead of being paralyzed by your fear, go. And the but there is adversarial. It's like instead of staying in your fear, you go and you tell. When, when we break free from our fear-based addictions to this fleeting world, we get to participate in kingdom work. We get to participate in eternal work. Kingdom obedience is fueled by the resurrection. Here, here's how verses 6 and 7 go. Don't be afraid. Jesus is resurrected, but go and tell the good news. That's how it lays out. It's very simple and it is very profound. Kingdom obedience is fueled by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus enables us to live not in fear, but just the opposite, courageously. To live our lives on a mission on a mission, whether you end up in Kenya or Katy, Texas, whether you end up in Timbuktu or Timber Grove, to believe in the resurrection is to live courageously. That's, that's what the text is calling us to. So I want to conclude with this. What is the very best evidence of the resurrection? I'm going to introduce some things that we haven't really talked about, which is a terrible way to conclude a talk. But there, there are four things that I thought about as the greatest evidences for the resurrection. Number one, the historical attestation to the, resurre- or to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Like The reality is the Bible talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Extra-biblical historians talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Nobody really argues whether a guy named Jesus was crucified or not. But in addition to the attestation to the crucifixion, How about the credible claims of the resurrection? We talked about that. The credible claims of the resurrection. Women were the first people who were witnesses. That 
that gives credibility. It's so countercultural that if you were lying, you wouldn't have lied in that manner. How about the doubt of the, of the disciples? That actually gives credibility to the resurrection story because if you're going to lie about it, you wouldn't have the disciples also doubt it. That's the first evidence, and it's a good evidence. I don't think it's the greatest evidence. Maybe another one to look at, the tomb was empty. If the Jews had wanted to discredit the resurrection of Jesus as it started to spread, they could have rolled the stone away. They could have gone into the tomb that contained the dead body of Jesus. They could have pulled it out, decaying as it was. Problem solved. And they didn't didn't do that. That never happened. Nobody ever produced a body. That's a good evidence of the resurrection. But how about this? None of the witnesses to the resurrection, and Jesus appeared 12 times before his disciples. He appeared to groups of like 500 plus people. Like He appeared a lot of times after his resurrection to a whole bunch of people. None of the leaders of this movement that was fueled by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of those leaders ever recanted. The Watergate cover-up lasted two weeks before somebody caved because people aren't committed to lies. And none of the first Christians ever recanted of their faith, even when they were killed for the beliefs in the resurrection. That's incredible, incredible evidence. But maybe the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the last 2,000 years of joy, the last 2,000 years of sacrifice, the last 2,000 years of service, the last 2,000 years of courageous Christians living differently. Because they believe in the resurrection, because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit who came in the aftermath of the resurrection, because the Holy Spirit of God helps people realize that He is risen. Look at the church. I'm not talking about the cultural church. I'm talking about the people who who genuinely believe. Look at their lives. They're different. They're more free. They're more bold. They're more courageous. They have believed in Easter. Look at the church, and you will see that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, that we might all believe so fully in your resurrection that our lives would be marked by empowerment of your Holy Spirit, by, by joy that comes from our belief in you, courage, all the things that we've talked about, God. May it not just be about other people, may it be about us. Father, I pray that we would be delighted to be sons and daughters of you, God Most High, on this Easter Sunday. But I pray, Father, that we would not celebrate Easter on Easter alone, but that that we would celebrate it every single day for you have changed us and you have empowered us. And God, we, we are grateful that we worship your son Jesus as a living king. And I pray that we would 
serve him well. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.